good morning. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab it. We're going to open to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. If you have a phone, an iPad, something, um, go ahead and open that up as well. Have the text in front of you. Um, If you're totally opposed to having it open in front of you, we're going to have it on the screen for you as a mercy. And um, you uh, may have noticed I'm kind of running around up here. Father Brian is uh, preaching for a friend in Colorado this weekend. Uh, This was scheduled uh, months ago, um, a good friend of his that he's had for a long time, so he asked me to, to preach today, and I'm, I'm super thankful for the opportunity on Pentecost. So I got to preach the Ascension last week uh, and Pentecost today, just super fun uh, uh, passages. I'm really thankful he trusts me to do that. And um, I thought, as I was preparing, uh, I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on the Tower of Babel. Have you? The Tower of Babel is kind of famous. It's this passage. It's like kind of, you know, this tall building, God doesn't like it, so he sends him away. What's going on here? Well, we're going to talk about today the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Um, Genesis chapter 11, and um, you may have a lot of different ideas about what's going on in the the ancient, ancient histories of the Bible. Uh, You might think, this is totally myth. You might think, like, none of this is is believable, or you might think it's total, actual, 100% fact. And I think in our modern age, we, we can just deal with the text as it is and talk about the narrative of Genesis when this was composed. We could just do that. But I think it's also fun to talk about, like historically, especially in the last 150 years or so, the kinds of things that have been unearthed and the kinds of, the kinds of things that we've learned from archaeology to kind of help us understand the context. And it, it sheds some light on the passage to help us understand what's going on. So before we get into the passage in detail, you, you know we have this just overview. We have this group of people who gather together in a land of Shinar, which is modern-day um, Iraq. It's, it's in Mesopotamia, the Tigris, Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It's right there. And they say, hey, let's get together. Let's gather together in this age where um, there aren't really big cities, right? People are, 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 are traveling around. They have tent encampments. They have these gatherings together. But there aren't cities per se. Uh, and, and they're like, hey, let's build this city. Let's build this tower because we figured out how to make bricks that are a little bit more durable than anything we've used before. Well, then God sees this, and, and he, he comes down, and, and he sees their pride, and he disperses them. Uh, and, and, and so then there's this, this variety of languages. There's this division that happens. Well, uh, in the background of this, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Babylonians, because you see, Babel is the city of the Babylonians. Uh, it, obviously, the, the verbal link there is really close. Um, and the Babylonians have their own ancient epic that you might have heard of uh, in some world history class. It's called the Enuma Elish, or Enuma Elish, however you want to pronounce that. I don't speak Akkadian. Um, so we have the text. I have a text of one section of that. Um, it's, it's pretty crazy. So I'll summarize the, the first. There's five. There's, there's, I think there's seven tablets. But the first five tablets is like nutso. I mean, there are gods all over the place. They're in fights. They're making new gods. They're naming up. There's these like uh, under gods named the Anunnaki, uh, who some people think are actually aliens that used to be on the earth, for the record. There's a, if you want to trace down that conspiracy theory, it's a thing. Um, so after this, ter- there's a terribly long conflict, tons of drama. Um, a god named Marduk, who's this like champion god. So say, everyone say Marduk. Marduk, so that's his name. Um, he's kind of the main character. He, he, there's this big conflict, uh, and one god who's leading that conflict, who's trying to conquer everyone, is named Tiamat. Um, and Tiamat gets overthrown and killed. Uh, apparently her eyes become the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. Who knew? Um, 
Then Marduk gets the, uh, he's like, who, who instigated this fight? Whose idea was this? Finds that guy, kills him, or God, kills him and makes humans out of him. Awesome. So the gods um, then give all the manual labor to the humans so they can rest. They're like, they can be our servants and slaves. We don't have to work anymore. And they can hold back the chaos on the earth. We don't have to. Okay, so this is written. Um, they come to this point. After this great victory of Marduk, they want to, the, the under gods, the Anunnaki, want to commemorate. In the he- There's still like a heavenly scene. They want to commemorate and extol and make a big deal of this god Marduk. This is what the Babylonians are writing. Okay? And here's what they say. The Anunnaki, they open their mouths and they address their lord Marduk. They said, now, Lord, seeing that you have established our freedom, what favor can we do for you? Let us make a shrine of great renown. Your chamber, this room on top, will be our resting place wherein we may repose. Let us erect our shrine to house a pedestal wherein we may repose when we, when we finish the work, when we finish building it. When Marduk heard this, he beamed as brightly as the light of day. He was very happy. Uh, next slide. Build Babylon, he says. The task you have sought, let bricks for it be molded and then raise the shrine. The Anunnaki wielded the pick. For one year they made the needed bricks. So they had this big old pile of bricks apparently in the heavens. When the second year arrived, they raised the peak of Esagil, a replica of the Apsu. Apsu would be like, it's both ocean and sky apparently. So they built the lofty temple tower of the Apsu and for Anu and Alil and Ea, these are other gods, They established it as a dwelling, and then he sat there in splendor. So this is written around the time, uh, well, before the time of Abraham even, who was in Genesis chapter 12. So in the story of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the the first parts of of the Old Testament are being written, put together, finally composed and, and compiled by Moses. This is known literature. And in fact, Babylon becomes and is at this point, if you guys have ever heard of Hammurabi's Code, Hammurabi's Code is kind of the first kind of legal code that we have record of. This might be one of the oldest stories ever. And Hammurabi's Code is one of these um, earliest laws ever because the, the, the society of Babylon in, in Mesopotamia was a major power. They started, they were kind of this first major empire in that area. And they set themselves up as this great uh, kingdom they wanted to build their renown to the heavens. The name Babylon in Akkadian actually means uh, this gate of the gods. Uh, it's this gateway to God. Um, they are very intentionally in their time setting up this tower to say, we have access to the gods. And later on, there's this, the, the, they, they are believing that their city has literally descended out of heaven created by these under gods for the sake of this older god, okay? So there's this massive conceit, this massive um, pride that's happening in, in the place of Babylon because they are conquering everybody. They think they can reach their way up to the gods and they're gonna build a shrine right in the middle of their city to say, we are the best, right? Okay, so that's Babylon. Uh, Israel comes out of Egypt. They're this little nation, they were a bunch of slaves. God says, it's not because you were the greatest nation. You weren't Babylon. You are a people of no renown. Yet I have set my affection on you. And I've called you out to myself. Um, and he says to Abraham, go out from the land of the Babylonians, the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make a great name of you. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
So these towers were rebuilt, rebuilt. We actually have, um, they're called ziggurats. You guys ever heard the term ziggurat? Okay, so we have a picture of a ziggurat. Uh, it's kind of restored. They're not in this great of shape anymore, um, but they kind of restored the outside of it. So you see the stairway to heaven. You guys ever hear of Jacob's ladder? They're ascending and descending to the heavens, they believe. And at the top is where the gods are residing. And they actually have like little, this is how great their gods are. They could carve them and they made their own gods and they put them there. Um, this is why it's important that the God of the Old Testament says, don't make images of me. You can't, I'm uncreated. You can't create me. You don't know what I look like. Don't put me in a temple. I inhabit the whole earth. Anyway, so there's this temple and this still exists. So this, this kept, these kept being built and they're actually all over the place now. In the, well, I say all over the place. There's several of them throughout um, modern Iraq, Saudi Arabia, places like that. So from a raw historical standpoint, this story has every sign of being something that actually happened a long time ago and probably over a long period of time. It's not like at once they all left. I mean, over a period of time, their society degrades. We know that it, it fell apart. Um, and this is, what's, this is uh, what is uh, being described in the Tower of Babel passage. But there are differences, aren't there? In the Babylonian account, they're trying to show how at the beginning of the creation of the world, their city was established and they were the beginning of everything. In Genesis, in the biblical story, they're just one city amongst all kinds of different people. They're being put in their place as one amongst many. The beginnings go way back before them and the God of the Bible is far above and beyond any local gods that might claim superiority. He's the creator of all things, all peoples, all nations. So then when we get into the story of, of, of the Tower of Babel, there are things that are, there are uh, themes that are taken over and then the biblical writer actually makes a satire of their myth of creation. Isn't that funny? So the Bible is the word of God. We believe it's true. We believe it's dependable. Um, we believe that it reveals who God is. It tells us how to live. But it's also human literature, which is beautiful. There's this marriage of the natural and the supernatural. And humans can be kind of funny. Not all of us, but humans can be kind of funny. And especially writing, especially in the Old Testament, as much imagery as they use, as many word pictures as they use. There's a lot of puns going on. There are different inversions happening and ironies. So Babylon, the gateway of the gods in Akkadian, do you know what Babel means in Hebrew? Confusion. Isn't that funny? So they're like, hey, Babylon, you who think that your city is so great, Babylon, you who think you have a gateway to the gods, it's just Babel. It's just confusion. The great God of all the world actually uh, didn't, uh, is greater than Marduk. And you've been dispersed. So we go in. Um, it's this counter city. And the theme of Babylon being this counter city to the kingdom of God, actually starting here, goes throughout the scriptures. Babylon um, uh, uh, sacks uh, Jerusalem and Israel and takes them into captivity. And it comes back. Babylon is, is an image used for Rome in the early Christian times. Babylon is used in Revelation as the final uh, city of the earth that Jesus destroys when he returns. And so Babylon is kind of this, this counter city, the city of man, if you will, as opposed to the city of God in the scriptures. It becomes this archetype, this image, that, that this symbol that persists throughout. So now we kind of have that background. You see what's going on? There's like, there's this, there's almost this satire, this play on the tradition that was well known. Certainly Moses would have known about it. Anyone in the Near East would have known. This is a major 
power, and their, we, we have records that their, uh, their epic of, of how they were founded was widely read, widely known. So it's in light of this, they go, ah, let's write the truth. Let's steal some of those images and write the truth. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and go in and look at verse one. Uh, verse one. Let's talk about this. All of the people were of one language. The whole earth had one language in the same words. Um, interesting, it doesn't use the word tongue. It uses the word lips. They were all of one lips, which is rare. So there's, I don't, I don't know that we have to read that they all had the same exact language, but that they could at least understand one another. There was, there was this ability to work together. I think that's at least an option. Um, and as people migrated, our text says from the east, um, but the same exact word is used in chapter 13 of Lot, uh, verse 11, when he, he goes to the east. And if you, have, um, if you have some other translations, I think it's the Holman Christian Standard, some other book, uh, uh, translations, the NET, they actually have to the east, not from the east. I think this is important because of this, this pattern that we see in uh, Genesis um, when someone travels to the east or travels east away from something in these early chapters of Genesis, they're traveling away from the blessing and plan of God to a place of, of judgment and destruction usually. Okay, so Adam and Eve, uh, when they're banished from Eden, they go east and they settle below. So they, they get banished from Eden, they go east and they settle below and chaos ensues. Um, when, when Cain kills Abel and is cursed by God, he goes to settle in a land east of Eden. It's kind of a famous phrase, east of Eden. Uh, in chapter 13, Abraham and Lot, they, they, they split up and Lot goes, he sees a place that looks like the garden of God, like Eden. And he goes east to establish himself there, which of course is where Sodom and Gomorrah are and they get destroyed. So there's this imagery of moving east. We know at the beginning of this story, they moved east to settle in verse two and found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. We know that, there's a, a theme here that's going to go uh, downwards for them, not upwards. Okay, so the pattern is already set. And they said to one another, come, come on. Literally, it's like this emphatic, come on, guys. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So these are, these are not just like packed together, but they are like baking bricks for the first time. And there's this advent of this new technology that we know like before that, they couldn't build the same level of structures as they could after the fact. So they burned these, big, these, these bricks thoroughly. They had brick for stone. So instead of cutting stone, like they had later on, they actually had these little bricks. And instead of mortar, they had something called bitumen, which was a basically slime, like mud slime, clay. And this is what they built with. Um, and this new technology, uh, tell me if this rings a bell, they get this new technology, and it's like the, te the technology itself, the ability to do something, now calls forth this new project. It's like, now that you can, you have to. Now that you've got a phone with access to everything in the world, man, you just have to access it, don't you? You should just be on it all the time. Now that you can space travel, you should spend your resources and do that. Like, you can go bigger and better, you ought to. The technology somehow starts to call us forth to then realize some greater potential in ourselves that may or may not actually be a good idea, right? Happens to us all the time. The same thing here. They get this new technology and they're, they're compelled to realize their own greatness. They're compelled to realize their own potential and they say, let's build as big as possible to the heavens. Let's, let's do this and, and make a name 
for ourselves. And make a name for ourselves. This is the thing they want to do. They want to establish their greatness and their name through their own efforts and through their own ingenuity. Why? Why would they want to do this? I don't think it's simply pride. It says in that verse, let us make a name for ourselves in verse 4, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You say they have a good thing going. They have a good thing going, but what they realize is we might actually have a shot at some permanence here. Instead of us all dying every however many years and, and we can't keep the, 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 the band together and um, rulers come and go, what if we establish something more lasting that outlives us? What if, I, what if we gave ourselves to something bigger than ourselves that when we're gone remains and has a legacy what if we had a purpose right in front of us that was actually bigger than ourselves and gave us this sense of, 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 of meaning? This is a very basic human impulse, isn't it? I mean, this is thousands of years ago, but humans haven't changed. We're human. And you and I, you and I, we feel this impulse. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to leave a legacy we want to do something that's bigger than ourselves, that when we're gone, stays behind, that we're remembered for. I remember being, I was probably a seventh grader. I mean, I'm talking 12, 13 years old. And I remember feeling in my bones. I remember sitting in the car next to one of my parents driving home one night and being like, I'm terrified of just being mediocre. I don't want to be just anybody. I want to be somebody. I remember feeling that as a, like a preteen. It, that doesn't go away. Like that's, I was just becoming conscious as a human. I don't remember anything before 10. <laughs> and like the second I have any kind of self-awareness, I was like, I don't want to go away. I don't want to be just anybody. I want to be known. I want to be important. I want to have a purpose. I want to last. Eternity is, is written in the hearts of man, Ecclesiastes tell us, tells us. And I think the residents of Babel are trying to solve for this basic human problem that we all have which is how do I leave something? How can I have a purpose that is bigger than my life and catches me up into its grand narrative? Well, their solution to that is t totally man-made. You see, they're trying to solve a supernatural problem with natural means. They're trying to solve a spiritual problem with physical means. Do we ever do that? Man, I feel really lonely. I guess I'll eat. I feel really lonely. I guess I'm going to go out and buy something. Man, I feel really insignificant. I guess I'm going to go find someone to think I'm significant. Man, I'm et cetera, et cetera. We all have this. Well, what happens? Verse five, the Lord came down to see the city. Oh, you're building this tall tower. Let's, Let's go down and see what those little guys are doing. Let's just crouch down here and see on the ground this little tower, this little bitty tower, these little guys. Hey, guys, it's cute. It's pretty, pretty cute. My mom thinks I'm funny. It's cute. They're like, 
this grand tower of all towers. God's like, let's go down and look, okay. <clears throat> Which the children of man had built. <laughs> they're not even people, they're children of man. Isn't this hilarious? It's the Bible. They're making fun of them. I think it's funny. Y'all should laugh. It's like, that's like good stuff. God is funny. And be, be happy that God is funny because that's where we get humor from. The children of, of men that they built. But look at this. Nothing that they propose to do. Oh, sorry, behold, they are one people. They have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. He's not afraid of their potential for ingenuity. He's mercifully trying to put in their way, uh, put obstacles in their way from circumventing his purpose for their lives. If they keep going, they'll just go totally off the rails. He's like, no, 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 no. I have a plan for you. I have a plan for all the nations of the world through my son. If they just keep going, they're just going to go totally off the rails and we'll lose them forever. We gotta, we're going to put these blocks in way that are actually acts of mercy. This judgment here is an act of mercy so that the way can be paved for them to see the one true God in the nation of Israel and through, ultimately, Jesus Christ. Come. This, come on. Same thing, right? We're going to talk about the parallels here. Come on. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Because communication is the key to every relationship. And they can't communicate. They can't build. Their tower um, is paused. They can't finish it. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Gate of the gods? No. Babel. Confusion. You can't solve spiritual problems with physical means through, man, through human effort. You can't. So it's confusion because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So, that's our story. Let's list out together, this is really fun, uh, let's list out some of the major details of the story. Uh, I made the list for you. You don't have to do anything. Isn't that awesome? Here we go. So, they have one language of the whole earth and the people settle there in the east. Then they speak to one another saying... Come, let us now make bricks. Let us build a tower. So God came down, is what that's supposed to say. Typo is my fault. He saw the city and the tower, God did. He said, come, come on. Let us confuse their language. They cannot understand each other. Then they're scattered from there, and he confused the language of all the earth. Now, does that sound about right? Does that cover everything? Cool. Well, there's this cool uh, Hebrew... Um, literary device called a chiasm or chiasm. Some of you in some circles might have heard about chiasms all the time. Um, they're not everywhere, but they are in some places. And uh, I think it's here, uh, and several biblical scholars think that. So the next slide kind of shows us what that means. A chiasm is a way of sandwiching material together. And so when you're at the top of the pyramid, so to speak, nope, uh, the pun is not intentional, um, you get the, the, the crux of the matter. So you arrange the material so it's like, a, A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime, all the way up to the... So there's parallels. There's one language of the whole earth, confused languages of the earth at the bottom. See that? Then see the second one? People settle in the east, they're scattered from there. So they, between settling and scattered. They speak to each other, they can't understand each other. Come now, let us make bricks. Come, let us confuse their language. Let's build a tower. He saw the tower. In the middle, on Pentecost Sunday, God came down. When God arrives, 
something happens. And it's the fulcrum of the whole story. Everything they intended to do by human ingenuity, by pride, by physical effort, God methodically undoes. I would say in his mercy, but also in judgment. God came down. The next time God comes down is at a mountain called Sinai to a people who are not the greatest nation on the earth, to a people who were just rescued from slavery, who didn't even know God, to a people who have no name, to a people who have no place to dwell, who have no purpose outside of themselves. They are utterly stuck. God unsticks them, brings them through the Red Sea, rescues them, brings them to Mount Sinai, and then God comes down. And what does he do? He gives them a name. You will be my people and I will be your God. By divine act, by divine direct declaration, your spiritual needs I'm going to provide for and provide for you out of spiritual means. Your soul felt deepest longings, I'm going to come and give you direction, help you know how to live, give you access into my presence at the temple. I'm going to provide all these things for you. And the, the, the juxtaposition here, the irony here, is that it's the smallest, the weakest, the, 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 the unknown nation that gets God's choice, God's love, God's affection. And it's the great, powerful nation of the earth that gets scattered abroad. Right after the Tower of Babel, at the beginning of chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will make, give you a great name. I will give you a great name. He has to give it. So if we think about it being Pentecost, here's where we're going to make the connection. We would be tempted to say, I think, that at Babel, God scatters the proud. And then at Pentecost, God gathers us. Right? You see that? That kind of tracks. But I think that's not all the way right. At Babel, God scatters the proud. But at Pentecost, God sends the humble. God sends the humble. God came down to send his people at Pentecost. What's the difference between scattering and sending? I think it's God's presence and God's blessing. See, at Pentecost, when we're sent by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, we're given understanding with one another and we're given the blessing of Jesus and we're giving, the, he will be with you and in you and will never leave you forever. And he will, he will go with you and you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria to the end of the age. Now at the end of the age, Jesus will return and he'll gather us all together in the new kingdom. But until then, we are the sent ones, not the scattered ones. We are the sent ones until he comes again. When he comes again to gather, he'll bust open graves. He'll bust open columbaria. I think that's the plural. He will put people back together. He will put flesh on bones. We will be together, gathered to worship him, to know him, to see him face to face, to love him. But until then, we go to tell as many people as possible that you too can be a part of that great story. This fantastical, otherworldly, 
supernatural, miraculous inbreaking of the kingdom of God, you can be a part of that too. And we do that not through physical means. We do that, we do that not through man-made uh, ingenuity, but we do that through the Spirit of God given at Pentecost. So what's the point? What's the point? First thing, you don't have to convince God to come down to you. You don't have to prove him to prove anything to him. God loves you. The Lord delights in you, Christian. You don't have to build a tower. <laughs> I spent so long trying to build towers, man. It's, it's junk. It doesn't go anywhere. It'll never fill up that spot. It just won't. You don't have to convince him. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to bring your ingenuity. You simply have to say, without you, I'm nothing. At Mount Sinai, Moses said, we're not going from here unless you go with us, God. We're nothing without you. So he goes with them. He gives them the tabernacle and says, my presence will go with you. And here's the sacrifices so you can approach me. And You don't have to prove yourself to him or anybody. You have to simply come in faith. And God will visit you. God will bless you. God will put his spirit in you. And when he does, he will be with you and in you forever. Not because of your ingenuity, not because of your effort, not because of your talent, not because you made it at work, not because you earned it, because he loves you and gave his son for you. Is that good news? This is the kind of God that we follow, not this God who killed other gods, not this God who is, is jealous or this God who's tired and wants to pawn off his work on the humans, but a God who pursues and saves and wants to enter into eternal loving relationship with us. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to prove yourself. He gives it to you and he gives you his Holy Spirit so that he can be with you and you can experience him. And the second thing is you, by the Holy Spirit, now have a purpose that is bigger than you. You have been called, if you indeed have the Holy Spirit, to be a witness for Jesus Christ and to make disciples of Jesus Christ unto the end of the age, so that when the everlasting kingdom comes, you and all those people that you shared with will be there together. You can live. There's the city of God and the city of man, and, and in Israel there was this, like, be the city of God, don't be the city of man, but now we're the, we're the city of God within the city of man, and we're, we're surrounded by so many things that call us away from the purposes of God and ask us to live according to the, the, the ways of the world and according to the city of man. And the, the malls are calling out, the, the shopping centers, the, the uh, Instagram, and, and everything is telling us to live in different ways. Live in unrighteousness, to just consume, just keep consuming, just keep buying, keep building, keep getting a bigger tower. I have this vision of every home being like a, a, its own tower of Babel in the suburbs where we just, we make it as awesome as possible make ourselves feel like we've really done something. Like, yeah, we got to take care of our families. Yeah, you got to have a place to stay and, and, and be safe, of course. But gosh, I'm, asked, I'm absolutely desperate to like warn us and to plead, it's my own heart, to plead 
that we don't get caught up and buy the crap of suburbia. Like don't, don't give our, we can't give ourselves to it. It will run us ragged. It will never satisfy. It's a veneer. There's a greater spiritual need inside all of us that can only be fulfilled through spiritual means, which is the Holy Spirit of God working in us and through us to then love and, and, and serve and share the gospel with those around us. You'll be fascinated how alive you feel in your faith when you are on mission and you are in homes and you are in relationship with people who don't know Jesus and you're sharing the gospel with those people. You'll be fascinated. Wow, I never knew I could be this alive for God. We have to table with them. See, God comes down to send us. Not because we're awesome, because he wants to. And that is really, really good news because you now have an identity as God's child and you have a purpose that's bigger than yourself that will outlast your life. And so I would plead with us all, challenge us, let's go. Let's go. Let's get on mission. To the glory of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.